Amen. Let's turn to God's word tonight. We're reading from the 68th Psalm, Psalm 68. We're going to commence reading at verse 1. Let's hear the word of God. Let's be thankful that God has spoken, but let's also be thankful that God is speaking, for his word is alive, it's quick, it's powerful, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. Psalm 68, verse 1. Let God arise. Let his enemies be scattered. Let them also that hate him flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melteth before the fire, so let the wicked perish at the presence of God. But let the righteous be glad. Let them rejoice before God. Yea, let them exceedingly rejoice. Sing unto God. Sing praises to his name. Extol him that rideth upon the heavens by his name, Jah, and rejoice before him. A father of the fatherless and a judge of the widows is God in his holy habitation. God setteth the solitary in families. He bringeth out those which are bound with chains, but the rebellious dwell in a dry land. O God, when thou wentest forth before thy people, when thou did march through the wilderness, Selah, the earth shook, the heavens also dropped at the presence of God. Even Sinai itself was moved at the presence of God, the God of Israel. Thou, O God, did send a plentiful rain, whereby thou didst confirm thine inheritance when it was weary. Thy congregation hath dwelt therein. Thou, O God, hast prepared of thy goodness for the poor. The Lord gave the word. Great was the company of those that published it. Kings of armies did flee apace. And she that tarried at home divided the spoil. Though ye have lain among the pots, Yet shall ye be as the wings of a dove covered with silver and their feathers with yellow gold. When the Almighty scattered kings in it, it was white as snow in Salmon. The hill of God is as the hill of Bashan, and high hill as the hill of Bashan. Why leap ye, ye high hills? This is the hill which God desires to dwell in. Yea, the Lord will dwell in it forever. Now, my text tonight is taken from Psalm 68, verses 7 through to 9. It reads as follows, O God, when thou wentest forth before thy people, when thou did march through the wilderness, Selah, the earth shook, the heavens also dropped at the presence of God. 
Even Sinai itself was moved at the presence of God, the God of Israel. Thou, O God, did send a plentiful rain, whereby thou did confirm thy inheritance when it was weary. Now, my theme this evening I've entitled, When God is on the March. Those of us who live in Northern Ireland are familiar with what is called annually the marching season, really from April through to September. A number of variety of parades celebrating past and present events take place. And of course, the height and the heart of the marching season is the 12th day of July. On Tuesday of this coming week, over 65,000 orange men and women will march to the field and back in honor of the 332nd victory of King William at the Battle of the Boyne over uh, King James II. And that took place in 1690. You see, the word march and marching as a theme has been on my mind. And I remember listening to an ode or a poem by the actor John Wayne many years ago. His real name, by the way, was Michael Robert Morrison. And he asked this question, really dealing with the, the civil war in America, why are you marching, son? It lasts about three or four minutes in length. And as I thought of that, I thought of this, that the word march is used seven times in the Bible. Judges 5 and 4, Psalm 68 and 7, Jeremiah 46, 22, Joel 2 and 7, Habakkuk 1 and 6, Habakkuk 3 and 12. Now, my mind was drawn to one of those references as I looked up every one of them, and here was one that I was drawing to particularly, Psalm 68 and verse 7. And as I read that verse, this was the theme that came into my mind just about 48 hours ago, and it was this. God is on the march. And hence the title, When God is on the March. You see, Psalm 68 is a wonderful psalm. It's a celebrating of God's great victories in the past, leading up to the present when it was written. And of course, at the heart of the celebration is the return of the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem or the city of Zion. Hence, we were singing tonight, marching to Zion. Now, Psalm 68 is a unique psalm in that it centers on the inevitable march of God to give victory to his people. It's really a celebration of how the Lord led the children of Israel out of Egypt, led them through the great and terrible wilderness, and led them into the promised land, and met their need in that land. In this sense, it's a reference to history. In this sense, it's really an historical allusion to that wonderful journey from Egypt, the wilderness, to the promised land. And you see, many commentators and Bible expositors complain that Psalm 68 is difficult to interpret. This is their argument. Well, it's not like Psalm 23. 
It's not like Psalm 46 or Psalm 100. They're easier to interpret. But this is very hard and difficult. It's full of difficulties. It's hard to interpret. Now, I have to be honest. I think and feel that far too many Bible commentators, far too many uh, Bible expositors, flag up at times and exaggerate the difficulty. Because I had no difficulty interpreting verses 7, 8, and 9. Not that I'm saying I'm at a par with these Bible commentators or Bible expositors, but you see, I have a simple mind, and it's this, LTBS. Let the Bible speak. In other words, let the Bible be its own interpreter. What are we reading here? Well, we're reading a history. We're reading a history of how the Lord went before the children of Israel and conquered all his and conquered their enemies. And let me tell you tonight, the Lord has a perfect track record of leading his people to a place of victory and the life of blessing. Remember this psalm. It was written historically to celebrate God's victories. And it centers on the inevitable march of God to give victory. So if you're facing personal enemies tonight, if we as a church are facing ecclesiastical enemies, if we're facing powerful enemies, if we're facing obstacles and difficulties, then you can rejoice if you know that the Lord is with you and know that the Lord can lead you to a, a place of power and victory. Let me just add something else in the introduction. Psalm 68 is also prophetical. It is true the Lord conquered all his enemies. It is true he ascended all the way up to Mount Zion, Jerusalem. And the Ark of the Covenant was brought there. And David reigned as king. And then Solomon reigned in his stead. But if you look carefully at Psalm 68, verse 18, which he didn't read, it says, Thou hast ascended on high. Thou hast led captivity captive. Thou hast received gifts for men, yea, for the rebellious also, that the Lord God might dwell amongst them. You see, this is not only historical to David, but it's also prophetical in this sense. It's a prophecy of the greater David. Because here's a prophecy of the victorious ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul took these very words, Psalm 68 verse 18, and applied them to the Lord Jesus Christ in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 8. You've got to think of Christ and his incarnation. The cradle in Bethlehem to the cross and to the crown again. A prophecy about Christ and the work of Christ. You see, remember that the work of Moses, the leading of the children of Israel, out of Egypt, through the wilderness, into the promised land under God, all the work of Joshua, all the work of the prophets, the major, the minor, all the uh, reigns of the kings, all the historical events and happenings, they're all foreshadowing the person and work of Christ. So really, verse 18, as an historical foreview of what is going to happen in the future. It's really a history in prophecy. It's interesting that in Psalm 68, verse 8, 
We read about Sinai. The earth shook. The heavens also dropped at the presence of God. Even Sinai itself was moved at the presence of God, the God of Israel. It was at Sinai that God gave the law. And the presence of God was so real that this is what happened. The earth shook. There was thunder and lightnings. The heavens also dropped at the presence of God. It it, it caused fear and alarm in the hearts of the people. They were so afraid they had to be told, do not come near the mountain, for if you touch Mount Sinai, you'll die. Does that not bring us to another mountain? Does that not bring us to the mount called Calvary? Where we see the Son of God who was manifested as God in the flesh. Suffering the wrath of a sin-hating God. The wrath of a broken law that you and I had broken. And he bore that wrath on his own body on the tree. He, he, He bore our sins on his own body on the tree. He bore the guilt and punishment of uh, our sins. So, so really, when we think of Psalm 68, it is a wonderful historical proclamation about God in the march, but it's also a wonderful, unique psalm, and it's more than history because it's rooted in prophecy. It's really a prophecy about Christ. When I read these verses, I was excited. Great verses. Listen to them again. O God, when thou wentest forth before thy people, when thou did march through the wilderness, Selah. The word Selah means think about that. The earth shook. The heavens also dropped at the presence of God. Even Sinai itself was moved at the presence of God, the God of Israel. Thou, O God, did send a plentiful rain, whereby thou did confirm thine inheritance when it was weary. When God is on the march, think of three things. First of all, the relevance of God's presence. Notice what it says in verse 7. O God, when thou wentest forth before thy people, when thou did march through the wilderness. Now, what's that a reference to? Let let me turn you to the word of God, uh, Numbers chapter 10. We read in Numbers 10, verse 33, And they departed from the mount of the Lord three days' journey, And the ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them in the three days' journey to search out a resting place for them. And the cloud of the Lord was upon them by day when they went out of the camp. And it came to pass when the ark set forward that Moses said, now listen to these words, Rise up, Lord, and let thine enemies be scattered, and let them that hate thee flee before thee. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, unto the many thousands of Israel. Now, do you see a correlation, a connection? Psalm 68, verse 1, Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered, let them also that hate him flee before him. You see, David was taking the words of Moses. David was thinking that Moses discovered a great secret, and the secret was this, the relevance of God's presence with them. O God, when thou wentest forth before thy people, when thou did march through the wilderness, Selah, think about that. You see, the Ark of the Covenant symbolized the very presence of God. I want you to think of the Levites 
lifting up the Ark of the Covenant using special poles, carrying it on their shoulders, carrying the Ark forth from this place to that place. Before them was the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, and they followed the pillar. The pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. And when the pillar of cloud moved, they moved. And when the pillar of cloud or fire stopped, they stopped. And as they lifted the ark, following the cloudy pillar by day, the cloudy, uh, uh, the fiery pillar by night, as they moved forward, taking their first few steps, these are the words that Moses said, let God arise. Let his enemies be scattered. Let them also that hate him flee before him. So, David took up Moses' prayer. Remember Moses' great concern after the children of Israel had sinned with the golden calf? We'll preach in that some Sabbath evening. Moses said to God in prayer, If thy presence go not with us, carry us not up hence. Exodus 33, verses 14 and 15. God said, I'll send an angel. Moses didn't want an angel. He's saying, if your presence is not with us, then I do not want to go forward. Because you see, if the Lord was not with us, it meant then there'd be no power to defeat the enemy. There'd be no blessing from God. There'd be no strength. There'd be no provision. There'd be no portion. The ark symbolized the very presence of God. And the ark symbolized, uh, as they followed the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, that God was marching before them into the great and terrible wilderness. You see, to them the Lord's presence was visible because they had got the pillar of cloud, they had got the ark of the covenant, and that symbolized the presence, the power, the provision the portion of God. And everything connected to that ark pointed to Christ. Here's the very setting of this cry. The Lord's going before us. Let God arise and scatter his enemies. Do you see that tonight? Can you sense that? And I was thinking of this. What's the great need of our hour? What's the great need of the church in the 21st century? Is it not this? To know and sense that the presence of the Lord is amongst us. You know, it's a great thing to have a program of activities. It's a great thing to be active in doing this, that, and the other. It's great to have men and women who volunteer to do certain things for God in the life and witness of the church. It's great, it's great to have a creed. It's great to have many other things that are real blessings from God. But here's the greatest. Here's the most important. It's not a, a program or a set of principles, but is the Lord present amongst us? See, see, many are asking, where is the Lord God of Elijah? Many are asking, where is the Elijahs of the Lord God? Do we not need a visible token of the Lord's presence? Is that our number one concern, as it was in Moses' heart and mind? It's great to have fellowship. It's great to make a profession of faith in the gospel. Great to have foundational conferences and youth forums. They're all very important. But the chief question is this. Is the Lord with us? Is the Lord amongst us? 
Is the Lord going before us and leading and guiding us? Have we got that assurance? Do we know that confidence? Because I, I'm going to say this. You see, I believe this is one of the greatest tragedies that should be a felt reality amongst God's people today. The fear of being the Lord withdrawing his presence and the Lord withholding his power. Remember Samson. He was in the lap of Delilah. And then he went out because she told him the Philistines are upon me. And he went out as at other times and, and shook himself. And the Bible tells us there in Judges chapter 16 verse 20. And he wished not that the presence of the Lord was departed from him. The Lord had withdrawn his presence. The Lord was withholding power. The, 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 the symbol of the Lord's strength was in the hair but that wasn't what gives Samson the strength. It was the Lord's presence with him. It was the Lord empowering him. Someone asked me the other day, well, is the church in revival? I had to be honest and say it's not. Then I was asked a second question, well, does the church need revival? Does it need another reformation? And the answer is yes. And at the heart of that Revival or reformation or renewal will be the Lord's presence. And you see, when the Lord comes amongst us in power and blessing, there'll be a fear and dread of who he is. And we'll realize that the Lord is before us, leading and guiding. Isn't that what happened in 1625 at the Six Mile Water? 1859, 1920s, I was driving um, past Kells the other day, and I was just thinking about 1859, in the year of grace, when God came down, and there was a mighty move of God's Spirit, and a hundred thousand were swept in to the kingdom. There's the relevance of God's presence. Now, now think with me very carefully, very quickly here. Think of the reach of God's presence. It says here in verse 8, the earth shook, the heavens also dropped at the presence of God. Even Sinai itself was moved at the presence of the God of Israel. You see, when God marched through the wilderness, what happened? Well, here's one historical incident that he mentioned. He mentioned the earth shook. The, heath, the heavens also dropped at the presence of God. Even Sinai itself was moved at the presence of God, the God of Israel. Here's one historical incident. You've got to think about the giving of the law. And, um, and what happened? If you turn over there to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, we read about Moses. We read there in verse, 22, verse 21, And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. And Paul uses that as an argument to then tell the believers in his day, you're not come to Mount Sinai. You're come to Mount Zion. Listen to these words, Hebrews 12 and 22. But you're come unto Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. See that you refuse not him that speaketh. 
For if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven. The presence of God was a felt reality among the people of God. And they experienced and knew something of the power of God at work. And I tell you this, when the power of God's at work, even his enemies will be scattered. Isn't that what we read in this psalm? Let God arise, let his enemies be scattered. You see, if God is risen, if God's presence is before his people, then the reach of that presence will be that not only will there be fear amongst the people of God, like Moses, I exceedingly fear and quake at God's presence, and their ear will be open to his voice, and it will be, speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. But even the powerful enemies that are before the Lord and his people, they'll be scattered. Have we not many enemies today? Let me tell you who they are. The chief enemy, of course, is the devil himself. The devil is relentless and his hatred of Christ and all that belongs to Christ. His aim and object is to rob Christ of his honor and glory. His aim and object is to destroy the very church of Christ. Remember Paul says, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Is indwelling sin not an enemy? What about our inward bias to sin? What about the depravity of our sinful hearts and minds? that takes us away from the Lord, individual sins, pride, a root of bitterness, discord, idolatry, greed, unbelief, lust. These are all tools of the devil to draw us away from the Lord Christ. What about the world at large, this ungodly, anti-God agenda that's there? The, the, the Bible says in Psalm 14, verse 1, the fool have said in his heart, there is no God. What about apostasy in the church? People rise up being used as tools of the devil and they begin to question aspects of the personal work of Christ. They deny his eternal sonship, deny the incarnation, his sinless life, his blood atonement, the necessity of the new birth, the reality of heaven and hell. Tell us the Bible's not the word of God. See, those are all heretical things. And those are things that are commonplace within Christendom. Amongst those that are ordained to preach and teach the word of God. And if a pulpit makes it uncertain, then what about the people in the pew? Is it any wonder there's chaos and confusion? What about the ecumenical movement? Do you know I believe tonight the ecumenical movement is a tool of the devil. Its goal is to unite the whole of Christendom under the umbrella again of Roman Catholicism. It's really an attempt to undermine and reverse the great Protestant Reformation. It all began at the Counter-Reformation in the 15th century, 1554. Church of Rome no longer looks upon those in the Reformed Church as heretics. We're now seen as separated brethren who need to return to the Mother Church. But let me tell you this. Those that preach and teach and believe in that were saved by grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone, and say that salvation's not dependent on the church, it's Christ that saves, and we're not dependent on religion or rites or ceremonies, or, or we're not dependent on the priest and the confessional and so on and so forth. Do you know that the Roman Catholic Catechism of, I think it's 1994, anathematizes everyone who 
says that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. See, the ecumenical movement is a tool of the devil. It's an enemy of God and his people. What about liberalism and modernism? Questioning what is truth? Under the guise of hypercriticism, questioning theological things to do with Christ, his person and work. And what, what has it led to, this higher criticism? It's led to a turning away from God. It's led to a, an embracing of error. Is it any wonder the Apostle Paul says this in Romans chapter 3 and in the uh, verse 4? Uh, listen to these uh, words. He says, God forbid. Yea, let, every, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and mightest overcome when thou art judged. Let God be true. Let God be true to his word. What about moral relativism? See, many today say, well, if it feels okay, if it feels good, go ahead and do it. Do your own thing. There is no God. There's no day of judgment. There's no one that you're accountable to. And you're a master of your destiny. And, 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 and it's destroying the souls of, 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 of men and women, especially among the young people. What about man-made religion, Islam, Buddhism, so on and so forth? Let me tell you this. Bear with me. In 1618 in Scotland, five articles of Perth were imposed by the bishop as enforced by state decree. The state decree was from James VI. Here's what they were. Private baptisms, private communions, kneeling at the communion table before the altar, confirmation by a bishop, the observance of holy days. See, remember the Church of Scotland was Presbyterian. And, and um, it, it was um, being uh, forced by the, the Church of England. Now, you might think, well, well, that doesn't appear very much. It's not really significant, nothing to get upset about, nothing to die for. But, but, but in the Church of Scotland at that time, in 1618, the presbyters there felt that this is a, a harbinger, a, a messenger to return to the Roman Catholic fold. That this is causing a wage uh, between truth and error. 1619, a critical tract was written entitled The Perth Assembly, and a man by the name William Brewster was arrested and put in jail. Do you know that in 1633, King Charles and Archbishop Laud tried to enforce the English prayer book in the Church of Scotland? Take you to the High Kirk in Edinburgh, St. Giles's. The Dean Hannah was reading from the English prayer book. And Jenny Geddes, a wifey, a little educated woman, she picked up her three-legged stool and flung it at the preacher, just missing his head, and shouted, Dost thou say mass at my lug? Meaning her ear. The, the dean was very scared, took off his robes and left. The bishop then stood up to take over, and he was shouted down, a Pope, Antichrist. You see, there were a people who loved the liberty of their nation. A people who loved the truth of God's word. A people who knew and loved Jesus Christ. A people who knew and enjoyed a full, free and forever pardon. A people who knew the value of a Presbyterian system of government. See, this was the grassroots. There's a form of government. And, and the people were represented at grassroots level. 
And they were represented there to take a stand on the issues of the day. And of course they refused to have a bishop imposed upon the church. And that led to the Reformation in Scotland. We thank God for men like John Knox, Andrew Melville, John Livingston, and many, many others beside. You see, not only is there the relevance of God's presence, but there's the reach of God's presence. When God arises, when God is stirring and working, the enemies of God take flight and are put away. One final thing, our time's gone. I want you to think of the result of the Lord's presence. Look at verse 9. It says, and I'll be very quick. Thou, O God, did send a plentiful rain whereby thou did confirm thine inheritance when it was weary. Here's a testimony. A testimony to God's past dealings, his present dealings, his, his future dealings. Notice the words here. Whereby thou did confirm thine inheritance when it was weary. You see, the Lord was the portion of his people. Thine inheritance is not just the land. See, this is where the commentators get hung up. They argue it's the land. Just thinking about the land, thine inheritance. But it's not just the land, it's the people. Because the Bible says in Deuteronomy 32 and 9, when we compare scripture with scripture, the Lord's portion is his people. The people say the Lord is my portion. You see, the Lord looks on you tonight and Christ is his inheritance. You've been chosen by divine election from before the foundation of the world. You, you have been bought by divine redemption, by the blood of Christ. You, you're, you're his by divine adoption. He comes and says, you're mine. It's a wonderful thing to say, I know and love Jesus Christ. He's my Lord and Savior. But the Lord and Savior comes and says of you and Christ, you're mine. You, you're my particular treasure. You, you're mine inheritance. Oh, that we could grasp that tonight. Not only was the Lord the portion of his people, but the Lord was the provider of his people. It says, Thou, O God, did send a plentiful rain. I'm not suggesting that the rain isn't literal for the promised land. I believe it was. But also, it's a reference to doctrine. The Bible says, My doctrine shall descend like rain, Think of doctrine coming down from heaven, like, like a shower of rain and the blessing that it brings. When, when the rain comes down, it descends down. And, and you see the revelation of God in the doctrine of the person of our Christ descends upon us. Where does truth originate? Did it originate with man? No, truth comes from God. Truth came from heaven. Jesus is the personification of truth. Men and women educated as they are, can't discover God by themselves. God reveals himself to men and women. God is at work drawing them. You don't know God by human investigation and human discovery. There's a divine revelation of God himself as the living and the true God. Think of the words, thou, O God. I, I love the way these words, O, are um, uh, fixed in the text, drawn out of the heart. Isn't it wonderful to know tonight that the Lord comes to his weary people? Are you weary? You're ready to quit? Can't take any more? What does the Lord do? The Lord comes to remind you that you're his portion. That you're his particular treasure. 
And he provides a plentiful rain for you, sending you a word in season, just like a shower in season, when the ground is parched and needs to be renewed. The Lord comes with blessing to establish and strengthen. It says here, Thy congregation hath dwelt therein. Thy, O God, is prepared of thy goodness for the poor. In verse 10. Isn't this the testimony of the individual Christian? Isn't this the testimony of the church collectively? Isn't the church gone through weary, hard times, dry days? The stand for God is difficult. Do you know in the early days of the free church, you were a free Presbyterian, identified with the work of God, the late Dr. Paisley and many others back then, you were, you were spat upon. You, you, you were mocked. Some even lost their job. I know of people who went into work and were told uh, on a Monday morning, you, you'll get your P45 on Friday and don't come back. People were being ostracized. But you know what? In those times, the Lord was amongst us and the people knew it. And the people flocked to hear the word of God. I remember the prayer meetings. I remember one in Balamina. And it was packed to capacity. And a sense of God's presence. And a longing for the power of God to come and work. Is it any wonder there was conversions? Is it any wonder there was great convictions? Is it any wonder there was people standing up in the meetings and crying out, I want to get saved. You see, God was what working. God was going before us. We are asking, well, why not now? What has happened? I asked this, have we lost our thirst for God? Have we missed God's presence? Do we long for that to return? If we think God is withholding his presence, withholding his power, and here's the relevance of it, and here's the reach of it, even our enemies being scattered, oh, we long to see that again. And here's the result. The Lord's the portion of his people. The Lord's our provider. The Lord is all we need. Let this be our prayer. Let's not just be an historical record. Let's not this just be a prophecy to do with Christ and his person and work. But oh, let this be a prayer. Lord, arise. Come in power and blessing again. Visit your people with a plentiful rain. Confirm your inheritance because we're weary. May the Lord take these few thoughts and bless them to us this evening.